If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 11 this morning. You'll find that on page 946 if you're using the church Bible. And I know as usual, you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. We're looking at Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 6, Romans 11, 1 through 6. And for the sake of context, for those who haven't been here through the whole of the Romans series, we are in that section of Romans, the greatest letter ever written, Romans 9 through 11, is the section in which the Apostle Paul is talking about Jew and Gentile relationship to Jesus. And he is asking, has God been unfaithful to his covenant promises that he made to the old covenant people, to theocratic Israel in the old covenant? Has he been unfaithful to those promises? And Paul has been saying, no, there is an Israel within Israel. There was always an elect within Israel. There was always that chosen, promised Israel that God was going to bring to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he's been dealing with all the the nuances of the relationship of why Israel has rejected the gospel, why they've rejected the Redeemer who God had promised from the very beginning. And he had given those very special promises to Abraham that The seed of Abraham would come, that a redeemer would come from Abraham. He would come from those people. Why have they rejected it? And Paul concludes two things. One, only the elect come to possess the righteousness of faith in Jesus Christ. But on the human side, Israel has rejected it because they sought to establish their own righteousness. There's only two options. Either God is merciful and gracious and gives you his righteousness by faith alone in Christ, or you seek to establish it on your own. And so Israel rejected Jesus, and Paul says they sought to establish that righteousness on their own. And we come to what is arguably the most difficult and uh, most widely varied among commentators, uh, interpretive section of Romans 9 through 11. So this morning we're going to read verses 1 through 6 and just enter in on this slowly And before we do, let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and preaching and hearing of his word this morning. Father, again, we turn our eyes to you and we humble ourselves under your word and we acknowledge, Lord, that unless you give us understanding and wisdom, we cannot see and understand. Unless you open the eyes of our hearts and uh, loosen our tongues to praise you and open our ears to hear the wonderful works that you have done in Christ, that we would remain even as Israel did, blinded to the truth of the gospel of your grace. And so, Father, have mercy on us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this place, that you would give us great understanding and wisdom, that you would change us and that you would build us up in Christ this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 11, beginning in verse 1 there, the Apostle Paul, carrying on in that discussion that I've mentioned to you already, now says... I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace or a remnant according to the election of grace. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. Well, in what is one of the most amazing testimonies of conversion that I've ever heard in our day is the story of Rich Gans. Rich Gans is a minister in a Reformed church in Canada. He is a leading biblical counselor, one of the key figures in the biblical counseling movement. And Rich Gans grew up as an atheistic Jew in New York City. He was preparing to become, uh, wanted to be one of the leading secular psychologists and had no interest in the gospel, had never met a Christian, had grown up traditionalistic, atheistic, and ethnically Jewish. And Rich Gans, in his 20s, I believe, was hitchhiking with his then wife through Europe. And, they, and he says, when he tells the story, children, don't do that. It's dangerous. This was in the 60s. It was dangerous. But now we know it's really dangerous. And he was hitchhike- they were backpacking and hitchhiking through Europe. And they found their way in the Netherlands. And they needed a place to stay. And they, asked, um, they were asking, where should we stay? And uh, they, they wanted to find a, a hostel or some place to stay. And his wife, as the story goes, saw a man and said, go ask that man. And Rich Gann says, what man? And he looked around. He didn't see. She said, that man over there. And then he saw this man. And later he would say he was dressed in, as they dressed in the Netherlands in the 60s, in, in a long white robe, blonde hair, sparkling blue eyes. And this man said to him, you need to go, you need to go down two blocks. And you're supposed to go over two blocks. And that's where you're supposed to stay. And Rich Gans thought, we're supposed to stay there? And as he recounts the story, he talks about sort of how creepy he and his wife felt at this point with this story about where they should stay at this random house in the Netherlands. But the man's name was Buck, and so as the story goes, he, he and his wife go to this house, and they say, Buck sent us, and the, the people at this house say, we have no idea who Buck is. And, um, and he said years later, telling the story, he said the people in the Netherlands in these houses were still looking for Buck and had never found this Buck that told them they were supposed to go to this house. And they went to the house. They had a good uh, time of fellowship there with these people, probably on just a very uh, communal, social level. And then when they were done, they said, well, here's where you need to go. You're supposed to go to this house over here. And at this point, his wife said, we didn't want to go. And so they found that... But In God's providence, they had a change of mind, and they went to this next house. And this was Labrie. Francis Schaeffer, you'll know, started Labrie in Switzerland. This was the Netherlands Labrie campus. And these were the first Christians that they ever met. And Rich Gans says, we're not sure why we stayed there, but we stayed there for a whole week. And we had discussions, everything about ethics and morality and philosophy. And these were the first Christians I'd ever been around. And he said they would have these special lecture times. And they had uh, two men, one a professor from the Free University in uh, the Netherlands and one from MIT who were talking about quantum mechanics and God. And Rich Gans says that's the first time he realized there were smart mechanics, he didn't. He says, I didn't know there were smart mechanics. And he said, and just before we left Labrie, and just before we left this first group of Christians that we had met in our whole life, he said, one of the men came up to me and he said, can I read some scripture to you? And so Rich Gans says, I don't, I'm not sure why, but I said, sure. And the man, not telling him where he turned, turned to Isaiah 53 and started reading. Um, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender root, as a branch out of dry ground. He had no form nor, nor beauty that when we see him we should desire him. He was despised 
and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was despised and rejected, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. He made his soul an offering for sin. And Gans tells the story that no sooner had the man finished reading that he was angry and said, how dare you read to me from your Goim New Testament, Goim New Testament. And the man turned it around and Rich Gans saw Isaiah at the top of the page and he was converted. It's a marvelous, it is a marvelous conversion story about how God took a man who was Jewish by descent and background and God had chosen Rich Gans and God providentially brought Rich Gans to himself. And, it, and while different from the Apostle Paul, there is a striking similarity that what Paul says here in, in Romans 11, 1 through 6, as he asks this question, has God forgotten his people? And Paul's answer is going to be no. I'm, I am an Israelite and he has redeemed me. And his conclusion is going to be that there is a remnant, that there was always a remnant according to the election of grace, that Paul was part of that remnant of the elect Israel within Israel, that Rich Gans is part of that elect Israel within Israel. And so this morning we're going to see these first six verses that the Apostle Paul is going to explain first by way of question, then by way of answer. He's going to give us the autobiographical, theological, and scriptural answer to the question, has God rejected his people? And so first we're going to see this morning the question concerning God's faithfulness in Israel. Notice there in verse one, again, Paul now, as he's he's unpacked this, you almost feel like it's redundant. You almost wonder, Paul, haven't you said enough? Haven't you told us enough? You've told us all about how God is vindicated. That's the point of Romans 9 through 11 is that God is vindicated. It's the justification of God. God can save whoever he wants to save, and God saves whoever he wants to save. And God is just, and God is right in everything that he does. We saw that in Psalm 135 this morning. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases among the inhabitants of heaven and earth. He does whatever he pleases, and no one can say to him, what are you doing? God is being vindicated here, but there's a question. There's this persistent question that Paul seems to be hearing from probably his Jewish opponents. If you read the book of Acts, it's very easy to see how many of these objections Paul was getting city to city as he went into the synagogues to preach to his brethren. And one of those questions that he introduced chapter 9 with, and now he's bringing to a close in chapter 11, is has God been unfaithful to his own? Covenant promises that were given to the old covenant people. That's the big question because you can hear, if you listen carefully, you can hear the unbelieving Jews saying, Paul, we are God's people. You're telling us that only those who have Jesus Christ are God's people. We're God's people. We don't believe in Jesus. So what are you saying? That God has cast us off? That God doesn't have covenant promises that he gave to Israel? And so Paul is asking this question, has God rejected his people. Now, this is a very difficult chapter. And it's difficult because Paul's writing in the first century. 
This is one of the big things we need to get. Paul is not writing as a 21st century American post the reestablishment of the state of Israel. Paul's writing as a first century converted Jew who is interacting with many old covenant people who are now apostate, who have rejected Jesus, and yet to whom the gospel is being preached, even though they've rejected their redeemer, rejected the, the covenant redeemer. And Paul's writing at a specific time, a transitional time when God is gathering in Jews and Gentiles to Jesus. And that's how the book opens. The gospel is about the righteousness of God by faith to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, to us, to non-descendants of Abraham, to non-proselytized old covenant Jews. And, And the gospel is for both, Paul has said. It's the same way of salvation. There's always been one plan of salvation. And then the question that Paul is here again asking is, has God rejected his people? I think that this is important to us. This doesn't, have, this doesn't have any implication. You will not walk out of here today and go home and say, I'm so glad he gave me these very specific applications to help me have a better week. So that's not why this is in the Bible. But, but here's, here's the question. Is God faithful to his promises? Has what God said and what he did through all the old covenant redemptive history... Is God faithful to do what he has said to do? Is he faithful to fulfill the promises that he said? Because at the end of the day, your Christianity and my Christianity rest on the tail end of the answer of that question. I was struck driving here this morning. I was struck by the thought that the Apostle Paul is consumed with the idea of salvation. He's consumed with the idea of God and salvation. Not a one time I prayed a prayer, but God saving his people, God fulfilling his promises, God working in his people's hearts. He is, he is consumed with the idea of salvation. Notice chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for his brethren, his countrymen, is that they may be saved. I think that it's striking that in the most theological book, ever written in the book that codifies what all of scripture is about, at the top is Paul's deep concern for the salvation of the nations. That's, so this question deals with, is God saving his people as he has promised to do? Is God saving his people? What about his old covenant people? Is he saving them? And so, so that's the implication of this, is that Paul is emphasizing and highlighting God's faithfulness in the salvation of his people. And notice now, secondly, he gives the answer. He says, by no means, or the stronger translation, God forbid. He's used it earlier in the book. God forbid. God has not rejected his people. Now, here's the question. On a prima facie reading, you might say, Paul has just said, God is going to save all ethnic Jews. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul will not say that in the first six verses of this. I do not believe Paul will say that anywhere in this chapter. And you may be saying, well, wait a minute. He says all Israel will be saved in 1126. Paul says that. Well, Paul says in 9.6, they are not all Israel. 
who are of Israel, but only those who are chosen according to God's promise, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. There was always an elect Israel within Israel. And now Paul's going to bring this idea back from chapter 9. He's, he's coming back to it again, but he's doing it in an interesting way. He's not just giving us a general idea about the doctrine of election. He's not just saying some Jews and Gentiles are elect, others aren't. That's part of it. But what Paul is doing is Paul is saying God has not cast off his old covenant people because Paul was a member of the old covenant and he was one of the elect. And we know that because Jesus stopped him at the Damascus road, gave him a new heart and sent him out to be the greatest missionary to turn the world upside down with the preaching of the gospel. And so Paul now is going to defend this answer, the the God forbid, autobiographically. Notice there in verse one that he says he starts with himself. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. What Paul is doing is Paul is saying, look, you question me, you question my ministry, you question the gospel, you question the Christ that I preach, you question all of this, and then you accuse and you say, well, Paul, you're saying God's done with Israel and that way of salvation that we were trying to establish by our own works, which was never religion in the Old Testament. It was never, God never called Israel to try to save themselves or get righteousness by their works. It's always by grace always by faith in the coming Redeemer. But, but they're saying, Paul, you're telling us God's going to the Gentiles. We don't like the Gentiles. You're telling us the God of Abraham is now the God of the Gentiles and not of the Jews. And Paul's saying, no, I'm not. I'm saying that God has always had his people. And I not only is this a message I'm proclaiming, I am proof of that. He says, I am an Israelite. And then notice what Paul does. He, he bolsters this. It might have been enough for him to say, I'm an Israelite. But notice, he says, a descendant of Abraham. You could become an Israelite by not being a descendant of Abraham. This is one of the big things that so many miss today. You could become a full Israelite, 100% Israelite, by converting to Judaism in the Old Testament. You, if you were the head of your household and you were circumcised and you brought your family in, you were every bit as much a Jew as, as any physical descendant of Abraham. Ruth marries into Israel. She is She is Moabite. She becomes 100% Israelite. So it's not just physical descent. It's a big point. It's not just physical descent. But Paul is highlighting that not only is he an Israelite, but to put forth the veracity and the legitimacy of who he is, Paul says, I am and I happen to be a physical descendant of Abraham. Paul could trace his lineage back as any good Jew at that time could do, all the way back through the tribe of Benjamin, all the way back to Abraham. And I think Paul is intimating there was no intermarriage, that he is, he is a direct descendant physically from Abraham. And then notice what he says. He traces it back to that tribe, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. It's actually quite fascinating, and this is an aside, it's quite fascinating that the tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out in the days of the judges. They'd become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And the other tribes were going to destroy Benjamin because they had become so wicked, and they deserved to be destroyed. And yet God spared a small portion of the tribe of Benjamin. And the Apostle Paul comes from that, that small portion. I actually think there may be an analogy there that he's part of the remnant of the elect. God spared a remnant in Benjamin from whom he brought the Apostle Paul. 
So Paul is, Paul is tracing all these things out and he's saying, he's saying to Jewish hearers that might be, a, look, I'm an Israelite. God has not forsaken his promises to Israel. I am an Israelite. God saved me. Notice that he says there in verse two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then secondly, in his answer concerning God's faithfulness in Israel, Paul gives us a scriptural defense. Now, I love this. I love this. What I love about Paul so much as we go through Romans is that every time he raises an objection against the gospel, and it's almost always from his Jewish opponents, he always points back to the scripture and shows them in the Old Testament where what he's teaching them was taught everywhere in the Old Testament. Perfect continuity. Absolute continuity. So Paul always goes back to the Bible. And, you know, it's an interesting thought to me. I wonder, I wonder if the Apostle Paul, as he heard these objections and he searched the scriptures, he was learning these answers as he went too. You know, I don't think Paul had, definitely didn't have an infinite knowledge of scripture. And Paul, Paul was probably learning these things and searching the Old Testament to see where the gospel that had been entrusted to him was being defended and the doctrine of election was being defended and, and Israel within Israel was being defended. And so as he goes to defend an Israel within Israel, notice what he does. He points back to 1 Kings, I believe chapter 19, and he says, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am, am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, this is remarkable. Paul looks at the present circumstance of Israel. They've rejected Jesus. They're apostate. They're, and this is, this is going to sound harsh but I think it's taught here. Paul is likening the self-righteousness of the Jews of his day to Baal worship. So that's how he's like, he's drawn that analogy and he's saying, trying to establish your own worship, your own righteousness, trying to work for righteousness before God is one and the same as if you went out and worshiped the, the grossest, most sexually perverse, demonic God. That's what Paul's saying. He's, he, and so he looks in the Old Testament and he finds this period in Israel's history where almost all of Israel had apostatized under Ahab and Jezebel. And if you read your Bible, it's a low point. It, it almost doesn't get lower than that. So bad that all of Israel has gone over to Baal worship. So the whole nation, not just to worshiping Yahweh and other gods are using carved images to worship Yahweh, but they had actually converted to paganism. And it's a low point. And then there's Elijah. And Elijah, as you read that story, he seems to be singled out. He seems to be the only one. He stands up against Ahab, who's a coward. He stands up against Jezebel, who's ruthless. He, he kills the prophets of Baal after God sends the fire down on the altar to show who the true God is. He has all the prophets of Baal killed and put away from Israel, which is what God commanded to be done. And then he falls into this deep state of depression. It's interesting. Elijah's at a low point, and he's scared, and he's depressed, and he's hungry. And God sends him the bird to bring the bread, and he, and he brings him the food, and he says, and he rests. He takes, sometimes when you're depressed, you just need food and a nap. That's the point. That is a point in the text. But Elijah's also sort of become spiritually proud. It's kind of this weird amalgamation. He, um, 
He's taken a stand for what's right. He's done what's pleasing to the Lord. He's depressed and tired. He's discouraged. But then he says to the Lord, Lord, I'm the only one left. Like, I'm it. Just me. And there's a little spiritual pride. The Lord rebukes Elijah. He makes him go through that whole process where he's not in the fire. And then it's the sound of silence. The Lord's in the sound of silence. And Elijah doesn't learn anything from that. He doesn't really, God doesn't say anything to him in the sound of silence. That's the point. It's the sound of silence. And yet the Lord was in the sound of silence. And then Elijah's saying, Lord, I'm the only one left. And God says to him, oh, no, Elijah, I've got 7,000 more that I've saved for myself. Now, that 7,000 could be uh, uh, a theologically symbolic number. It could be more than that. It could just be 7,000. But God has, he has a, a remnant. He has a portion of people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And it's interesting what Paul does when Paul quotes that verse there in verse 4, Romans eleven four, 4, when he quotes God's response, and, and here he quotes it, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul actually adds the words kept for myself, which is the intention. It's not in the Hebrew, but it's the intention that God had kept a people for himself. His purposes had not failed. There was always a people that God was having mercy and grace upon, and he had hidden them away in Israel in Elijah's day, and Elijah didn't know they were there. And he looked out, and he looked like Israel was done, and God said, no, I've kept you, Elijah, and I've kept these 7,000 over here. I love this quote. John Calvin says, um, when no vestige of God's favor appeared, the church of God was as it were, hid in the grave and was thus wonderfully preserved. I love that imagery, that God, as it were, was hiding for himself a people in Israel, as it were, in the grave, hidden away. He was preserving his people. And, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thought that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, that God knows his people and God knows how to keep his people. That's a, that's a thought for us. That's a thought for us. Will God keep me? Will God protect me? You know, this is one of the most comforting thoughts in all of scripture. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And how many times we as believers think, I've sinned too much. I've gone over the edge. I've sinned. I've, I've out sinned God's grace. And then we start shifting into works mode to try to gain assurance. We try to atone by what we do. Sinclair Ferguson says the idea of topping off grace with works is not grace. He says it's a negotiated contract in our tiny little twisted minds. The idea of topping off grace with works is not grace. It's a negotiated contract that we create in our tiny little twisted minds. And we do it spiritually. And so we need to be reminded from the account without Elijah that God keeps his people. He has a way of protecting them and preserving them. And the church may grow low in the true worship of God. And Christ may not be being proclaimed from pulpits. And we may see a day of widespread apostasy. Europe saw that. You know, Rich Gans, this is beautiful. Rich Gans is backpacking through Europe Hundreds of years after Europe had the light of the gospel in the darkness of Europe and God had him end up at Labrie to hear the gospel and to be saved. God has a way of preserving his people, even when we don't see how, even in places that we don't expect it. That's amazing. That's amazing. That means, well, we busy ourselves and we go around our day and we do all the things that we do. God is working out his purposes in saving his people. 
and he has his people everywhere. You know, there's a sort of a parallel with the, um, with the Elijah account, even in the ministry of Paul. Paul has been uh, preaching the gospel, and Jews are rejecting it everywhere he goes. They're running him out of the city, running him out of the city, running him out of the synagogue, mob lynching him. Everywhere he's going, Paul is being chased out for preaching Jesus. And, and Paul ends up, he goes to, finally goes to Jerusalem where he wants to be, and James is there. And James says to him, this is beautiful, James says, and, and the believer said there to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. James says, look, Paul, the gospel's not in vain. Look at the thousands here in Jerusalem who have believed. God is a way of preserving his people, even as it were in the grave, where the gates of hell are. What a God we serve. What an amazing God we serve. And then Paul finally answers this question theologically. Now notice this is sort of the focus of this chapter and this section. Notice verse 5, Paul summarizes what he said autobiographically, what he said scripturally. He says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now Paul does three things theologically. One, he tells us about three things. The remnant, God's election, and that it's of grace. Those are the three theological components. Paul says there's a remnant. You know, the whole Bible, it's one of the massive themes of the Bible is the remnant principle. God destroys the world in the days of Noah. Do not watch the Noah movie. I got like 15 minutes in, and it is one of the stupidest movies I have ever seen in my life. You can quote me on that. It is terrible. Read Genesis 6 through 9. It it will be way more engaging You will not have these weird rock alien angel things. I don't even know what they were. It was like a joke. Obviously, it was a joke. Somebody's laughing in Hollywood about having made this movie. Um, But in the days of Noah, flood destroys the whole world, saves eight people, the remnant. There was a remnant, and it was of grace. It was a remnant. And then all throughout Israel's history, God said, if, if there had not been a remnant, if there had not been this small leftover portion of God's people, that Israel would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. God would have destroyed them. He saved them because there was a remnant of his people. And Jesus comes and the Messiah comes and the Savior comes to Israel and he says, many are called but few are chosen. And he says, broad is the way that leads to destruction and many go in thereby. Narrow is the way that leads to life and few there are that find it. And so Paul says, look, here's the answer. Has God rejected his people? No, there's always a remnant. And notice Paul says, at this present time. So he's speaking in the first century. I think a lot of chapter 11 is about the present time and Paul's present ministry and the Jews and the Gentiles there. He says, but even now, as there always has been in the days of Elijah, in the days of Noah, there's a constancy. That remnant principle never goes away. There's always only a remnant who are saved. And Paul says, and right now, There is a remnant of ethnic Jews, of old covenant members, whether by birth or grafted in, that God has reserved for himself. And then secondly, he tells us that they're elect. We're not going to go over all of Romans 9 again, but it's the same thing he taught there. The reason the remnant believes is because they were chosen. It is always and only individual, personal election by God, that God doesn't foresee anything that we do or else it's works. And so Paul thirdly tells us it's by grace. Now, 
I thought about this a lot as I as I prepared this. And if you read through Romans, if you just read through it, and that's always a good thing to do, just read through the whole book in one sitting, you almost ask yourself the question, did Paul really need to say here in 11.6, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. I mean, hasn't Paul hammered in grace enough? And the answer has to be no. He did. He felt like here at this point, he needs to say it's not because the remnant did anything. It's only because God elected them. And it and that shows that it is all and only of grace. Listen to these two quotes for you. They're beautiful. John Murray. If grace is conditioned in any way by human performance or by the will of man impelling to action, then grace ceases to be grace. All that is is a word of your explanation of what Paul says in verse 6. If, if grace is conditioned in any way by human performance, if it's conditioned at all by human performance or by the will of man impelling to action, then grace ceases to be grace. It's works then. Some of the old translations you have, it's a textual variant where it'll say works are otherwise not works, that it changes the nature of grace if we say anything contributes to it at all. It is free, unmerited favor. I love the hymn we sang today. I love it. All the fitness he requires is that you feel your need for him. That's not you doing anything. That's saying, I need a savior. And that it's all unmerited grace. And that even that, the hymn says, this he gives you. This he gives you. It's the Spirit's rising beam. Our God saves us by grace. And it is only grace. And so when you're battling with your sin, and you're grieved over your sin, and you feel like you've outsinned the grace of God, God in his grace says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and I am just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he reminds you, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And he says, having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminds you of all the sweet promises that he fulfills for you. And he says to you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the one who comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. So that if he drew you by grace, he will keep you by grace. He will preserve you by grace. He, you will endure by grace. And, that will, and the whole of the Christian life then is nothing but grace. Listen to this, John Calvin. This is one of the most beautiful quotes John Calvin I've ever read by Calvin. Grace leaves nothing to works. Grace leaves nothing to works. The righteousness of works is annihilated whenever grace is mentioned. That's amazing. Grace leaves nothing to works. The righteousness of works, trying to gain righteousness by what you do, a right standing with God, is annihilated wherever grace is mentioned. And I think Paul's doing this because the great problem with the Jews of his day and the great problem with all of our hearts is that we have a tendency to want to work, to top off grace. Just top it off a little. That's what, that's what the, the Pharisee did in the temple, right? I thank you, God, grace, that I'm not like other men. I don't do that. Top it off. That's works righteousness. And what Calvin says is what Paul says. If it's of works, then grace is no longer grace. Here's the result of this. I don't want us to get bogged down with Israel because I don't think 
These six verses would encourage us to get bogged down with current events. I think what these verses tell us is that God is a God of saving his people. He is faithful to his promises. He only saves a remnant. He always saves the remnant. He's always faithful. It's always by grace. It's only according to his election. And here's what we do. We sing his praises in response. And that means however many Israelites he wants to save, however many Gentiles he's going to save, he's gathering together in Christ Jesus one new people for himself, and it's all by grace, and it's all to the praise of his glory. Look at the end of Romans 11. We'll close with this, because this is where it all moves. The very last verses. Look at this. And this is, this is the response we should take away this morning. Verse 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given to him that it might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And that's the response that our hearts ought to cry out as we leave this place today. If today is the first day that you trust in Jesus, if today is a day of renewed trusting in Jesus Christ, if a day is, uh, today is a day of having your heart recalibrated by God's grace, if you are continuing on faithfully trusting him alone and looking and relying on him alone, we all should respond in the same way. We should leave this place and say, from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory alone. It's doxological. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we can only scratch the surface of the treasures of Scripture and the riches of your ways, which are past understanding and finding out. And Lord, we thank you for the richness of what we've heard this morning. We thank you both for the life and the conversion of the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the scriptural proof that you save a remnant according to the election of grace from the days of Elijah. And we thank you, Lord, that you have explained to us that it is all of grace and all to your glory. Father, we pray that you would stir up our hearts and minds to continue worshiping you from this place, that you would fuel worship in our lives this week ahead, and that you would make us rely solely on the grace that you have for us in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.